A question was asked of a contestant in a Miss America contest over 20 years ago. If you could live forever, would you, and why? The answer of the contestant, and actually the subsequent winner, was this, quote, I would not live forever because we should not live forever, because if we were to supposed to live forever, then we would live forever, but we cannot live forever, which is why I would not live forever, end of quote. You know, the truth is we're often not too excited about heaven. We're much more interested, it seems, in earth because we don't really realize how cool and exciting and incredible heaven's going to be. In fact, talking about heaven today, I can't come anywhere close to explaining how good and great it will be. And maybe we feel that way because we have some kind of goofy and mistaken ideas about heaven and what it's all about. Let me start by just dispelling a few of these for you. First of all, heaven is not going to be all white. Uh, you're not going to have wings and a halo. In other words, you're not going to turn into an angel. One of the odd things I hear often when someone dies is, heaven just got another angel. Well, the answer to that question is, no, they didn't. Now, you're not even going to be a cute little chubby cherub. You're not going to wear a long white robe. You're not going to float around on clouds. You're not going to be singing in a large choir uh, singing the Hallelujah Chorus 24-7-365. You're not going to play a harp. Quite honestly, to me, that would be hell. Now, I can't think of anything more boring than to be in a colorless place playing a harp. Now, if it were um, a saxophone or a bass guitar, well, no, not really. And you're not going to be looking down and keeping watch over loved ones that are left behind. Actually, that would probably be pretty miserable. And if it were miserable, uh, you would not be in heaven. So let's take a look at the real thing, the reality of heaven. And you find it in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. It says, since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sight on the realities of heaven. Now, I'm going to pause there and just say, and don't focus on what Hollywood or other people try to think up or make up or try to show you. But set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits at God's hand in the place of honor and power. Now, in this one single little verse, Paul establishes the truth that since we've been raised with Christ, we have a, a new status and therefore we have a brand new way of living. We now have a power source for living. I mean, believers have died with Christ, we've been buried with him, we have been raised with him, and so even as Ephesians 2, 6 states, we have been seated with him already, it seems, in the heavenly realms. See, that's the kind of truth that we need to appropriate each and every day in order to break free from this world. That's why Paul says to us, set your hearts on things above. Now, I'm sure you've probably already heard the phrase that he's so heavenly-minded that he's of no earthly good. Now, while that's possible, I suppose, it's more likely that people today are so worldly-minded that they're no heavenly good, or for that fact, earthly good. But see, if we truly set our hearts on things above, we will experience power and freedom already here on earth, a little bit of heaven on earth, if you will. See, Jesus put it this way in Matthew 6:21: for where your treasure is, what? That's right, where, that's where your heart will also be. So if our focus is on things that will ultimately not rust or tarnish or break down or burn out, or, or, or our energy and our emotions will be misplaced. But if we seek 
out Christ and follow him, then uh, he becomes, we allow him to become our ultimate treasures, and then our hearts will follow. Now, one way that I'm always reminded of this is by the Lord's Prayer. There's a little phrase in there that says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I can recall going to a Christian grade school where we were made to memorize what the Protestant reformer Martin Luther said. He said that we should pray that the kingdom of God would come not only into our hearts, but into the hearts of all other people. And at the same time, we were praying that God would bring his kingdom back and establish his kingdom forever. In an odd way, when we pray that, we're praying for the final judgment. Now, the question is, what happens at the end? What will happen when the horns blow, the sky cracks open, and Jesus comes in all of his glory with his angels to judge both the living and the dead? Well, the question is, we don't really need to guess, because the Bible tells us. It's in Matthew chapter 25. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And that word, all the nations, is tech ethnoi. It's, it's every ethnic background as well. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So you got this idea that he is not going to place the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left, which is already telling you something, because you always want to be the right-hand sheep, the right-hand man. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom, the kingdom you've been praying for in the Lord's Prayer, prepared from you from the foundation of the world. And then he goes on to say why? For I was hungry. And you gave me food, I was thirsty, you gave me a drink, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me, I was sick and you visited me, I was in prison and you came to me. Then it says the righteous, the right living, the right thinking, the right doing people are going to answer him, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? Or when did we ever see you thirsty and give you a drink? When did we ever see you a stranger and welcome you and naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come and visit you? I mean, in other words, what they're saying is, Lord, we were just going about doing, living our lives the way that would best reflect our already relationship with you. It wasn't that you weren't on our mind, but it's because we have the mind of Christ that we were doing these things. And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That's going to be a joyful time for those who are Christ followers. Then he's going to say to those on the left, he's going to say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we actually see you? I mean, we never saw you, Jesus. Uh, maybe that's why, because people had the world's eyes and they didn't have the Jesus eyes. 
Is it when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he's going to say to them, really, folks, the problem was you were too busy living your life to even notice me. Because when you did it, did not do it to one of the least of these. In my distressing disguises, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's what's going to happen at the end of time. So my question right now is, will you all be standing with the sheep or with the goats? Now, if you're going to be standing with the sheep, give each other a high hoof. (laughs) But more about that later. Now, let me ask this next question. What will heaven be like? What will eternal life be like? Now, again, we need to look no further than what the Bible says. And and I'm going to touch a little bit here on the book of Revelation, but not much, because in the final message in this series next week, you're going to go all the way through the book of Revelation in 35 minutes or less. But in chapter 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. It's almost as if you could picture the globe, no more seas or oceans, and it's just all land. He said, I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, when I read that passage, I I think of about four different things. One of them is that heaven is a real place. Now, there are a lot of people, including liberal, what they call themselves liberal Christians, who deny the existence of heaven. They actually deny the existence of a real devil in hell. They say that heaven is just kind of a state of mind. It's a wishful thinking. But Jesus here says, I go to prepare what? A place for you, and there you'll be with me always. That's what he says in John chapter 14. So it's a literal, tangible place described in great detail in Scripture. And notice also in these first couple of verses I read, it said that John saw, he saw it with his literal eyes. I'm going to tell you, friends, heaven is real. And we're going to have real bodies. (laughs) Not these bodies, but glorified bodies. The kind that Jesus had when he rose from the dead, when he was able to pass through walls, and yet at the same time he could touch people and sit down with people and eat. I mean, it's going to be a different existence, but it will be as real as real can be. The second thing I think about in this passage is this, that heaven is a remaining place. I mean, verse 1 tells us that everything we know, the old heaven and earth, is going to pass away. Nothing you see on this physical earth is going to last. Now, we, we like to have a lot of nice things, and quite honestly, we ought to enjoy them. That's part of living as good stewards. But don't get too attached to them, because they are not permanent. See, in the end, all we are going to have are the treasures that Jesus said we're going to send on ahead of us. I think it was preacher Chuck Swindoll who said, have you ever seen a U-Haul in a funeral possession? Well, no, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And one of the most precious treasures 
we will have in heaven is being approached someday by someone who says, you know, I got, be, I got saved because of your witness. Your testimony, your mission giving, your prayers. Uh, you know, heaven is a real place. It's a remaining place. Another thing I think about here is that heaven is already a ready place. Verse 2 said it's a place that's been prepared. Now, I've done a lot of weddings in my life. I don't remember exactly how many. I did one just this last Sunday in the Denver, Colorado area. And I know it takes a bride a long time to get ready. It takes hours and hours and sometimes hours with someone just for her dress, her hair, her makeup. Um, yeah, I don't even know all what. But guess what? The Lord has spent a lot of time and spares no expense in readying heaven for us, preparing our mansions for us. We, his bride, the church, his bride. See, over 2,000 years compared to just six days of creation. I mean, you look at the butterfly, you look at the rose, or you look at the stars and the planets. All of that was done in six days. And by comparison, heaven, uh, comparison to heaven, the Grand, Grand Canyon is going to look like just a, an ordinary ditch. See, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. You know, it's also a place of relationship. See, if the streets were not gold, instead were gravel, if the walls were just particle board and not jasper, if mud was knee-deep in heaven and weeds grew up way over our head, it would still be heaven. Why? It's because Jesus would be there. And remember, heaven is not a reward for those who are faithful because we can't work our way into heaven. We will be elated to be there but only because we're related. We are sons and daughters of the King. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. But you know, there's one more thing about heaven that I, I think I'm going to really enjoy, and that's that it's a place of relief. Verses 4 and 5 tell us that there are going to be no more crying, sighing, or dying. I mean, no hospitals, no nursing homes, uh, no need to renew prescriptions, no walkers, no crutches, no wheelchairs. There's going to be no ages, aging or wrinkles. Nothing will ruin, rot, or rust. There will be no thirsting, no hungering. There won't be any uh, itching. There won't be any blindness, no uh, deafness, no diabetes, no cancer, uh, no heart attacks, no scars, no battling witchcraft, no drugs, no alcohol, no tobacco. I mean, this is a place where there's no divorce, no child abductions, no, no addictions, no accidents, <laughs> and no bills. And that's what Paul is talking about when he wrote to the Romans, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed to us. That's a little glimpse of what heaven is going to be like. What a great place. Now, let me get back to a question that I skipped earlier. The question is, how do I get there? How do I make sure I end up in heaven? How do I end up in the big sheep pen in the sky? See, this is really important because Jesus said the door to heaven is narrow. It's not a wide door. It is a narrow door. In fact, as somebody kind of jokingly said not long ago, why do we have a song that is called Stairway to Heaven and another one that talks about a highway to hell? Well, 
In Romans 1, chapter 17, the good news tells us that God makes us ready for heaven. He makes us right in God's sight when we put our faith and trust in him to save us. This is accomplished from start to finish purely by faith. By grace are you saved through faith. The scripture says, the man who finds life will find it through trusting God. So how do I get to heaven? I'm going to become a part of God's family. Drawn by the power of the Holy Spirit, drawn by the word, I am going to follow a simple little A, B, C, D. But what do those little stand for? All I think about A is, I admit, I need a Savior. I mean, I say, God, there's no way I can get to heaven on my own. I can't earn it. I'm a sinner. I've blown it. I've never been perfect. Uh, I just admit it. I need you. And B, I believe. When the jailer at Philippi, after the earthquake, had uh, taken all of the uh, chains off of Paul and his companions, he said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul simply said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. It's just that simple. Believe on Jesus. Jesus, the, the only way, the only truth, the only life. And then I confess. He said, if you confess me with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that Christ is raised from the dead, you will be saved. I mean, you simply say, I admit, I, I trust in you. I, I make this commitment to you, Lord, to follow you. And the D is, I depend I depend on the promises you've made. And the greatest promise that God has ever made is wrapped up in what we sometimes call the gospel in a nutshell. It's John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. See, that's how you get to heaven. I admit I need a Savior. I believe in him, I commit and I confess and I depend upon him. So now, friends, knowing a little bit more about what heaven is going to be like, how the end judgment will take place, and understanding how we can spend eternity there, there's one last thing I think we need to talk about, and it's this. How should we be living right now if we are truly going to heaven? Now, I'm going to share some things here, and we're going to wrap up. But if I'm going to go to heaven, this is how I should be living out my daily life. This is how I should prepare for the final curtain. Number one is don't be distracted by temptation. Remember, you're just passing through. There's an old hymn of the church. I'm but a stranger here. Heaven is my home. So we don't let the baubles and the bangles and the beads and the sins of this world catch us off guard. Peter writes, we're only visitors here on earth. Since your real home is in heaven, keep away from the evil pleasures of this world. They're not for you. They fight against your very souls. So fight against the temptations to take the hard rights against the easy wrongs. Paul, or the writer to the book of Hebrews, also put it this way. If they had wanted to, and he's talking about Moses and Abraham and all those guys, they could have gone back to the good things of this world, but they didn't want to. They were living for heaven. Now God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has made a heavenly city for them. Don't be distracted. Stay focused. Here's the second thing. Don't be discouraged by trouble. See, when you live in the light of eternity, when you live in the light of heaven, 
trouble doesn't bother you nearly as much anymore. You just plain simple don't give up. In 2 Corinthians, it says this is why we never give up. These troubles, these sufferings of ours are, after all, quite small, and they don't last very long. Now, every time I read those words, I'm thinking, you know, this guy who wrote this, the Apostle Paul, this guy had been beaten, he had been shipwrecked, he'd been adrift on the sea, probably holding on to a board or something, he'd been put into prison, he had gone without food, he'd gone without clothing, he had been persecuted, he'd actually been stoned and thrown out and left for dead outside the city walls, he'd been lowered in a basket on the walls just to escape, and yet he still says that these Troubles and sufferings of ours are, after all, little things. They don't last very long. Yet, he says, in this short time of distress will result in God's richest blessings upon us when? Well, forever and in heaven. So he says, we don't look at what we see now, the troubles all around us, but we look forward to the joys in heaven, which we have not yet seen. The troubles will soon be over, but the joys to come will last forever. The third thing, and that is to focus our energy on what really lasts. Friends, you know, when you read your Bible, it can sometimes be a little bit confusing until you understand that there are really going to be two judgments in heaven, two judgments in eternity. There's one judgment for sin, and there's one judgment for rewards. One is a bad judgment, one is a good one. Now, if you have trusted Christ with your life, if you are truly a Christ follower, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, you get to skip the judgment line. That's good news. So stop thinking that you're going to be stuck in some big long line someday where somebody's going to plop you down the chair and review all of the horrible, rotten, miserable things you've ever done in life. Because if you trust in Jesus, you skip that line. The Bible says that he who is trusted in the Son will pass over the judgment. You're not going to be judged for your sin when you get to heaven. Why not? You were already judged. They were already judged by Jesus on the cross. On the cross, he already paid for them. You get to skip them, and that, that ought to be good news. But there's another judgment line. We've kind of talked about it a little bit before in Matthew chapter 25. As a believer, you go through. It's the judgment of rewards. And this is where God says, here's what I'm going to give you for what you did. You know, that time you you did that or you thought that or the time you said that or the time you were kind and nobody looked or the time you were generous or the time you sacrificed or the time you brought a friend to church, the time you prayed and you sat with a neighbor and you didn't give up. I was watching all of that. And I'd like to reward you for eternity. Now, if you're like me, you're probably saying, Oh, man, I wonder why I didn't do more. See, that's why Ephesians 2, 8, and 10 comes to mind. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. But then he goes on to say, for we are his workmanship. I mean, God knit us together in our mother's womb. We were created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which Christ God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, we need to be reminded that good works do not earn us salvation. And yet, we need to be reminded that they are a reflection of our love for God who loved us so much that he would send his own son, Jesus, to suffer and die, to conquer sin and death and Satan, and to prepare a place for us. 
That's why we, we, we live like Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3. I run toward the goal so that I can win the prize of being called to heaven. This is the prize that God offers because of what Jesus Christ has done. That's why I keep a, a little 3 by 5 note card on my desk. It's kind of, I, I have some things written down to just kind of remind me day by day to pray for the whole world, to read through my entire Bible, to sacrifice my money for specific purposes, to spend my time in another context, which explains why I work in prison or am active in ministry in India and why uh, I teach working for Crossways, and also to commit to be a part of a multiplying community. There's one last thing, and that is to share the good news and take others along with you. See, one Bible passage that has resonated with me for many years, it is part of the driving force for what I continue to do, even though I no longer pastor a church full-time. It's Matthew 24, 14. It says, in this gospel of the kingdom, this good news of the kingdom, and believe me, this is good news, is it will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Isn't that interesting? When this gospel has been preached to all the nations, to all the ethnic groups, then the end will come. Now, let me explain why this passage has meant so much to me as the years go by. In 1998, that's 17 years ago, I heard something that really startled me. The speaker was a well-known evangelist, and he stated that in the year 1900, 1900, if every Christ follower would reach just 27 people for Jesus, the end would come. Isn't that interesting? 1900. 115 years ago, if every believer had reached just 27 people for Jesus, the end would come. But then he asked this question, how many people would every Christ follower need to reach for Jesus today for the end to come? Now the question is, do you think that number is higher, about the same, or lower? The answer, he said, was if every Christ follower would reach but six people. Six people. The end would come. I, I don't know whether that number is different since he said that. But I have been convinced that in order to fulfill God's mission, the primary work of every church is to help people. To help people build a relationship with God through Christ to be a disciple. To build relationships with unbelievers. To make disciples. To build relationships with other believers to help each other be disciples who make disciples. And see, this makes sense because God created us for a relationship with him. Since he created us for relationships with another and since he, uh, since he sent Christ to restore the relationship with him and since the gospel spreads primarily through those relationships. And friends, know this. This is happening the gospel is being preached all over the world. Whether you believe it or not, we are still making inroads into this world. God continues still to open up doors of ministry for the gospel to be preached. And I just want you to understand one thing. Jesus taught his disciples, and that includes us if we count ourselves as Christ followers, that everything he's shown them as signs would take place within their lifetime. 
But he did not just want them to sit and, and soak and wait for his coming. Jesus wanted them to preach the gospel, to share the good news until the day he chooses to come back. Friends, we still live with the tension between the imminent return of Christ and the delay of his coming. The tension will be broken by the suddenness of his return. But until that day, and as long as we have breath, let's share the good news to everyone, everywhere, every place. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. Now, as we close, I'm going to pray two prayers. The first prayer is for those of you who may never have settled the issue of heaven. I mean, if you were to drop dead when you walk out of here, are you absolutely certain that you're going to heaven? If the answer is no or you're not sure, you can make sure right now. I mean, why would anybody put it off? The Bible says this could be the day of your salvation. You need to settle this right now. You need to accept his free gift. And then I'm going to pray a prayer that you will start living in the light of eternity. And you'll start thinking more on banking in heaven instead of banking here on earth. Because this is not all there is, friends. If you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life, just pray along with me. Lord, I admit that I'm not perfect. I've sinned. I've blown it. I've made mistakes. I've got flaws and faults, and a lot of times I've done what I wanted to do instead of doing what you wanted me to do. There's no way I can get into a perfect heaven on my own. I need your grace. I want to turn from my sins. I want to trust you. I want to put my faith in what Jesus did for me. I thank you that you so loved the world, that you so loved me, that you sent your only son, Jesus, so that if I would believe in him, I would not perish but have everlasting life. So today, Lord, I'm accepting what Jesus did for me. I'm saying, Jesus, I want you to be number one in my life. I commit myself to you. I trust you with my life. Help me to learn to love you. And I'm depending that you will give me the promise of heaven because that's what you promised. And now our second prayer, one all of us need to pray. Heavenly Father, Forgive me for being distracted by things that aren't going to last. Forgive me for giving in to temporary pleasures, the bad things, and even the good things that aren't really what life's all about in the first place. Help me to live in the light of eternity. I, I don't want to be distracted. I want to live in the light of the fact that I'm going to be with you someday. Help me not to be discouraged by the troubles I'm facing, but to realize that you use them for good. Refocus my values and help me to live for what's going to last and what's going to matter most. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.